I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On digital radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, Gary Neville, my Manchester on Talk Sport. Gary Neville, footballer, pundit, businessman, a man of many different talents and a range of interests, and all linked to one place, Manchester, the great northern powerhouse. This is the story of Gary Neville, but also the unique relationship with his hometown. This is Gary Neville, my Manchester. Nicole touches it in here for Cantona. Chance for Gary Neville. No! I don't believe this. It's his first ever goal. Gary Neville. Good ball in. And United immediately reply through Andy Cole. Gary Neville goes steaming in on Matthew Etherington. Gary Neville flung himself into the line of the intended shot. Great tackle by Gary Neville. Nicky Buck steps in. On from Beckham. Gary Neville. Gary Neville arriving, and Gary Neville has scored for Manchester United. Now a moment, Gary Neville will treasure for the rest of his life. Fantastic, incredible man. He is an absolute legend of the club and will remain so the rest of his life. And Neville has run up to those Liverpool fans. He's grabbing the crest. Gary Neville, the captain of Manchester United. Imagine you're looking forward to two weeks' time, aren't you? Liverpool against Manchester City. For the title, it's like it's like having a choice of two blokes and meet your wife. It'll be an almighty roar as the players dance behind him. There it is. Manchester United's 17th league title, their 10th in the Premier League. Manchester United are the kings of Europe. For 20 glorious years, Gary Neville wore his heart on his sleeve. An Old Trafford regular since he attended his first match at the age of six, captain of the brilliant 1992 FA Youth Cup winning team, outspoken representative of United, one of the most decorated English and European footballers of all time, having won a total of 20 trophies, including eight Premier League titles and two Champions League titles and a long career playing for his country. Neville is the ultimate one-club man. He has been at the heart of it all at Manchester United. And Neville welcomed us into his private office, a converted mill in the Deansgate area of Manchester, and gave us a behind-the-scenes perspective of his early days with the likes of Giggs, Scholes, Keane and Beckham, his pain and pleasure with his England and Valencia roles, what the Salford City project means to him, 
what the future holds for this unique entrepreneur. I thought that after countless chats in the Sky Sports offices, I knew Gary quite well, but I was surprised about what's behind the famous Gary Neville. You are a morning person. Yeah. So uh, this is early in the morning, uh, but for you it's almost like mid-afternoon. What time did you get up today? Four o'clock. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I, I've got into this. I, I, I've got into this habit. I was away on holiday actually a couple of weeks ago in uh, Bali, and I can sleep ten hours. But it's almost like the minute I come back, I just go into almost like work mode and I go to bed at 10, half 10 and I'm up at sort of half 3, 4, half 4 I can't get past 5 and a half, 6 hours um, and this morning I thought oh I'm just going to get up, I got in my car and I drove to a hotel and had some breakfast at 6 o'clock and then here were you now, after so, 7, 8 o'clock So you feel like uh, sleeping is wasting your time in a way, that there is so many things to do I, I feel like uh, I've got so much on I've got so little hours in the day when once, once once everyone wakes up your day just sometimes drifts away from you because things sometimes and it's, I suppose it's time management and I'm reading up a lot on it at the moment in terms of how you manage your time during your day your 8, 9 hours 10 hours during the day in terms of finishing tasks that you start rather than a phone call coming in and I'm getting distracted I might be thinking about Sky and all of a sudden a phone call comes in on a development in Manchester, St Michael's, and right, I'm, I've not, I've stopped thinking about Sky for half now because I'm not thinking about that or Salford City or could be any number of different projects, the restaurant, stock exchange, and I, I need to concentrate on one thing. So, but what I do between five and eight is I'm guaranteed three hours of peace because people don't ring you, people mm-hmm. don't, even though I've started to ring some of my. Um, work colleagues between seven and eight you know, I know from five till seven five till eight I'm, it's me and I can get things done I can reply to emails I can get any piece of work I need to do any preparation I need to do catch up on what's happening in the football world early in the morning before the rest of the day what's been written what's been said and then I know full well because I won't get a chance later on in the day At the same time the ability to jump uh, from one yeah. thing to the other and, and have a clear head it's a, it's a talent absolutely necessary in, in today's world, isn't it? You have that, don't you? Yeah, it's a massive challenge. I'm being open with you here. The idea that at the moment I have a, a team of three or four real trusted people around me and we do have to be agile and work between a development project, a sports project, an education project, a restaurant project, a hotel. And they are flexible, but... It's getting to the point now where actual spe- I, need, I need specialists in each area and we now resource. I don't like employing people, I'll be honest with you, uh, because I think once you start to stretch your immediate team that you trust your investments with, develop with your companies with, you start to becomes, it starts to become diluted away from what the, the idea was in the first place. So I have a core team of around three or four people, but I'm now recognising that I wanted to, for instance, employ a central PR company for my businesses, football, that's Salford City, hospitality, property development, um, education project, whatever it might be. The reality is that you need specialists in each division. The hospitality company, for instance, the hotel, they're saying, well, the PR people that you've employed are good in development, but they're not good in hotels. So 
it's starting to now branch out into all different areas. It's becoming a little bit more confusing and it's more difficult to compartmentalise. And that's the challenge. The biggest challenge I have at the moment is managing that time between each project and sector and actually getting the right service to the companies. So you're going from working with friends to working with professionals. Is it going to be as much fun? I'm... uh, I love business. I love the thrill of exciting. I only do business projects that excite me. I don't do them... I don't look at the sort of the spreadsheet and say, oh, that gives me a... a, I think, do I like it? So, for instance, the hotel outside Old Trafford or the stock exchange in Manchester... Michelin star restaurant in Leeds that we're looking to buy into the Salford City. I love them all. I don't dislike any project that I do. There isn't. I can't do it. If I don't love it, I can't do it. It's simple as that. So, even if it's if it's if, if you showed me tomorrow an industrial estate in Ilkley, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even turn over the page. Mm-hmm. Wait, I can't get excited about an industrial estate in Ilkley, even though it might be a fantastic project. So we are at your offices now, which is quite close to the city centre. Uh, this is the so-called apartment side of things. Uh, I don't know how much private life happens here because it looks like another big office, <laughs> but is. really nicely uh, yeah. designed. What happens here? What happens in this building? So basically the idea was I bought this building four years ago and it was to have all the people that... So all the heads of all the businesses and all the main people in the building. And on top here is an apartment, which is the reason I bought the building. One, I do use it sometimes for private use, but generally this is where we sit. And I don't believe in working office space. I hate the idea of working. All the businesses that I have now, we work, I design an office like a bar. (laughs) That's the way I see it. A coffee shop, a bar... People sat in different areas. People got music on. We have, you know, I'd normally have music on here in the background. I don't want people sat in straight lines, 1.2 metres apart from one another, with a, each having a little laptop. Of course, you have to in some sort of call centres or production, but the, for me, the idea of working in a conventional manner in a normal office would just be ridiculous. It can't happen. I think people need to be inspired, surrounded by good design, surrounded by art, surrounded by music, to enable them to be creative and to work in a, a, a good environment and I don't believe so we're, we're expanding downstairs into the other two floors we've got two floors here, the two floors we rented initially, we're now taking those two floors back and the bottom floor I'm making almost like a think of Sky Sports News with all the digital screens around the edge mm-hmm. with like a, 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 a polo mint bar in the middle and the idea being that if it's a Salford City meeting, I can turn all the televisions to Salford. If it's a development meeting, I can turn all the televisions to development or the, the project we're working on. And it's almost like, a, again, a different type of idea that uh, I don't like working in a conventional way. I don't. I, and here in this office, it's, it, it's vibrant, it's exciting, people come in, there's no dress code, and we just enjoy the projects we work on. It. And I, I, I'm, I, I love this office. Uh, it's an old mill in Manchester that obviously has got a lot of history and, you know, yeah, it's a fantastic place to be. We, we're going to touch on some of the projects that you're involved with, but let's go back a little bit to um, to your playing, playing career. And when you hear uh, or see uh, somebody talks to you about your playing career, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Is it a smell, a picture, a goal, a game, a person, a manager... Do you know something? I'm five years, nearly six years retired now. I don't think about my playing career at all. 
I honestly don't think about it at all until uh, I might do if, if I get reminded. You just ask me a question now, so it sort of makes me think about it. But I don't think about my playing career. I don't reflect on it. I don't miss it at all. I, I, I don't know if other football players. Or I miss the thrill. I miss the buzz on the Saturday. I don't miss anything about it. Um, I know one thing. I miss the nights when we won trophies. I miss the nights when we won trophies because they were the best times of my life and where we had 22 lads. Whichever 22 lads they were, the record was obviously there for a long time, but whichever 22 lads in that 20-year period, we just had the most amazing night, which celebrated, sang, drank. I miss that. I miss the Christmas party with the lads and I miss the pre-season night out. If you said to me, what do I miss? They're the things I miss. Mm -hmm. Because the, the days that I know I'll never get back in terms of, I genuinely believe that I'm, I'm, I'm as excited now about the things I'm doing. I'm excited about Salford, a new stadium proposal we're going to put in the next few weeks. Um, I love playing for United. What does it remind me of my career? I, lucky, I feel lucky to have played for United. I, I feel privileged, but I don't think anything of it. I, it's weird, really. Um, there's nothing that wants to take me back there, either emotionally or mentally there's nothing I sometimes draw upon maybe experiences of, the, of things that happen but not, not reflect on that playing side You are listening to Gary Neville My Manchester with me Guillem Balaguer on Talk Sport Coming up Gary Neville talks about life as a professional athlete. 20 years, that dressing room was so driven, it never stopped. You went at 9, you went at 12, you went at 4, you went at 7. You trained hard every single day. You give your all all the time. You're honest with each other. His disappointments with Valencia and England. People will always look at that externally and think it was a negative experience, but for me personally, um, I lost football matches, but what I gained is a lot more. And his big plans for the city of Manchester. This city now needs to get back to where people live in the city. I know there are people who live in the city, but it's quite small compared to what it should be. So you have to work hard to actually get to that level and stay in that level. You have to work really, really hard where others perhaps didn't need to yeah. because they had more natural talent or whatever it was. Was it suffering? Is that, is that why you're not thinking of it? Um, at the end, in the last six months, 12 months, I was tired. I was tired of, probably because, probably because of the struggle in the last two or three years with injury. But I was just tired, I'd had enough. Um, and you can never be like that for playing, you know, wearing that shirt, wearing that United shirt. Uh, was it a struggle? No, I mean, no. No, it, it, it was it was everything I wanted. It was everything I wanted in my life. It was everything that I dreamt of as a kid going into Old Trafford. Um, I never saw it as a sacrifice. People say, "Oh, you make sacrifices." No, uh, that's not a sacrifice. What to be professional? To not go out, to not eat this, to not eat bad things, drink bad things, um, to work hard, to go in the gym, to do your pre-activation, to do your warm down. And do it every single day, meticulously, relentlessly, never stopping, and never thinking that hard work is a temporary thing or that you can just have a day off here or relax there. 
No, that was to me what everybody did at that club, I felt. It wasn't just me. I just felt for 20 years that dressing room was so driven, so... It never stopped. It never stopped. You went at nine, you went at 12, you went at four, you went at seven. You trained hard every single day. You give your all all the time. You're honest with each other. Um, and it was an unbelievable environment. I was privileged to be part of it. But everyone else was the same, I felt, in that dressing room. I could say Phil Neville, Oliver Solskjaer, Paul Scholes, Roy Keane, Brian Robson, everyone I played with, uh, everyone, I named six, but I could name 26, I could name 40. Absolutely brilliant professionals. Um, and now I feel the same, that I've got to do the same every single day, because that's probably what I am, it's what we were, it's what the club was, and um, I'm grateful for that experience. A lot has been written about uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, your relationship with him as well. But uh, the thing that I find most, most fascinating is how he played with your minds. And the more I hear about it, the more fascinated I am, how he made you feel that you perhaps were better. Is that a business call or a personal call? <laughs> business. <laughs> I don't know why he's bringing on my iPad. Do you have that problem? No. Everyone has that problem, don't they? But sometimes these, you know, these connected cloud things. Yeah. That, once I met, well, I'm not a techie. That's what. <laughs> I use these iPads and my phone. And my phone's ringing. Thinking, What's going on here? Uh, so yeah, how he played with with your minds and uh, perhaps even made you feel better than you were. Yeah. How you gave absolutely everything to him. Mm-hmm. You worked it out. You worked out how he worked yeah. towards getting that from you. Yeah. He had a hold and a control over the whole club. It wasn't just the dressing room, it was the whole club. He he never threatened you, but you felt the threat of leaving was so great that you're almost... Because the, the club was so good and the dressing room was so good and everyone enjoyed it that much that it was almost like the threat of, the threat of being let go, the threat of being out the team meant that everybody just pushing themselves all the time. Everybody was pushing themselves. You know, if if there was a new programme started in the gym by Mike Clegg, and let's say it was boxing, or let's say it was, you know, pull-ups or whatever it might be, everyone had to try and beat each other. And there was that sort of competition all the time. You know, if somebody, if the training started at 10 o'clock, how early could you get in? How much? How early could you get out? Could you get out before Paul Scholes start kicking the ball? If you got, could could you stay out after Beckham or Ronaldo practicing free kicks? Could you do more than everyone else? That was always the sort of mentality, and it, it came from him. Maybe it was just driven from the fact that everybody didn't want to leave, and everybody recognised that you just had to strive all the time for better, and and it it, it just felt like everybody was like that. And I don't know many dressing rooms that are like that. You know. I've, I don't know many dressing rooms that are like that. Continuously, I don't. I, I really don't. He created a, a well with with borders, big walls yes. by the sense of it that you don't, yeah. you don't want to get out of. But also, he created a culture yeah. that you've all carried with. Yeah, I always re- I always remember saying it was a goalkeeping coach, Eric Steele, and he, he he summarized it more. He came up to me one day and he said he'd been here for two years, and he said he said I now get it. He said it's like a little island. He said, when you're on it, you're protected, you're looked after. He said, when you're not on it, you're gunned down. Anyone comes towards us, you just gun them down. And I thought it was the best explanation of how the Sir Alex Ferguson period was at the club. It was us 
you look after one another, you protect each other, you defend your borders. You know, using <laughs> using army terms, but you, you almost like felt like that that no one, I don't care about anybody. You know, my mindset six years ago, I remember, I think my, one of the lines in my book is um, something like, uh, United's everything, the rest, excuse my language, beat that out. <laughs> and that's how everyone felt, that's how I felt. I didn't care about any other player, any other club, any other fan, any, I, I didn't like any of them, didn't want to like any of them, didn't want to engage with any of them. They just, to me, were a, an irrelevance. It was just United, and that's how the whole club felt. And it wasn't an arrogance, it was just a, a determination and a belief. Um, and now I feel a lot differently, because I'm out of football, I've been around the grounds, I've worked at Sky, and I've been to meet all the other players. I've worked with England with, with players from other clubs and I'm incredibly fond of them, and I, I'm a more rounded person than I was six, seven years ago, which was a player, who, a person who lived in a bubble of just complete... Self, that was it. United, look after one another. That's it. Forget everyone else. So you you haven't taken any of that into your present uh, situation, into your businesses. Uh, I do. I don't care about other businesses, other developments. I respect them. I enjoy them. So other you know, other hotels are open in Manchester. I go in them. I go in other restaurants. I like all the development, but I do only concentrate on my own. I I, I think you have to be more aware in the market that I'm in now. Uh, We were so confident and self-assured at United that we weren't looking elsewhere to think we'll copy them. We had an identity, we knew what we were. And when you've got that, you don't copy, you don't look elsewhere. Whereas actually, if I'm setting up a new restaurant, it's exactly the same. You don't copy, but you look for influences maybe sometimes. You get ideas, you're travelling and you you look for maybe develop, I'm doing a development. So you'll go to New York or you'll go to Bali or you'll go to Singapore or you'll go to Dubai or you'll go to Spain. You go to Mallorca and I think, okay, there's something there that might be able to, it might be a market stall in Dea that I think that would look nice in Manchester in the in the square that we have in the development. So you're influenced a little bit. I think in football, in, at United, it wasn't maybe as much like that. Although I was influenced a little bit sometimes. I was influenced by Carlos, by Cafu in my game, about how the game was shifting, about becoming a more attacking fullback. Yeah, I wasn't an attacking fullback when I first came, so there were influences, but didn't feel as much. So I now feel more rounded and more, you know, particularly living in Valencia for four months as well. That I think that was, you know, people will always look at that externally and think it was a negative experience. But for me personally, um, I lost football matches, but what I gained is a lot more. I think in terms of just general experience of life and different culture and understanding and actually appreciation for different country you know a, a different country I remember when I remember when foreign players used to come into our dressing room and they used to complain about the weather or used to say oh the food in Manchester isn't as good as it is in Spain or isn't as it and I used to shoot them down it's, you know disrespectful but now I sort of quite understand <laughs> I'm on a cheese in Spain it's quite good what did, what did Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> used to say when he went say to Newcastle and it was three o'clock in the afternoon and dark he said uh, who switched the lights off I know yeah who switched the lights off <laughs> That's what, they, 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 yeah, I think it's a problem attracting attracting people to the north of England, attracting people from that culture to the north of England is a challenge. But I think United can get over it because of the size of the club and the scale of the club. But I think it's getting more difficult for, say, clubs in the North East that haven't got that pull. I think London is a, obviously a far greater... Uh, attractive location to, to, to foreign people than 
than the say North East is. And the, but I think Manchester, I have to say, is probably now he's definitely the second city because of one the prominence of football. But I think generally the way in which it's moved forward in development, in hospitality, in tourism. I think you know music. Generally, there's a music venue. It's wonderful. It has great events. Uh, BBC moving here. I know it's little things, Trafford Centre, the development in the city centre, London concepts and international concepts coming here. So I think Manchester is in a good position to keep people more now. It's good that Aguero stays in Manchester for a period of time, that Zabaleta, that uh, David Silva. Martial, that Ibrahimovic, vantage play by the referee. Ibrahimovic looks up, shoots, scores! He was 25 yards out, he's just passed it into the bottom left-hand corner and he runs towards the edge of the United Technical Area where Jose Mourinho is off the bench and off his feet, jumping with delight. There's a difference. I used to say, Scandinavians, no problem. They'll come to Manchester, they'll enjoy it. To get somebody from Spain or Italy or Argentina or Brazil was always a challenge. I think it's getting better now, accepting that you know, it's more of an international audience, Manchester used to be in Wimslow, and is it Hale, the places where you would yes. walk out and uh, you would see, oh, look, it's Michael Owen, oh, yeah. look, it's uh, whatever, Steve McManaman. Yeah. Do you get like that in Manchester? Because it's not huge. I mean, no. the, oh, oh, look, Jose. Oh, but Pep. Hello, Pep. <laughs> That's what I'm seeing. I think that Pep, I saw, they read an article the other day, I don't know if it's true. I know that there are a couple of players, prominent players, living in Manchester City Centre now, and I know that it's been announced or reported that Pep's living in Manchester. I know Jose's staying in a hotel in Manchester. Um, so he's Latin, I believe, or he was. Has to be a positive. Has to be a positive because this city now needs to get back to where people live in the city. I know there are people who live in the city, but it's quite small compared to what it should be. Uh, and I think now people will, if no people will move back into the city. There's no doubt. Transport, just the way in which city life appeals to more people now. There are more open spaces and better developments, better restaurants, better life, better quality. Uh, better retail, everything is better than it was 25 years ago. You could never foresee 25 years ago that Manchester would have major developments like it has now. Coming up, we take a drive in Gary's car. If you're a fan of Manchester United and come to this ground, it's the most incredible experience. And I think I, I, I see it as my football home. I, I always have to and always will. Uh, it's the club I support, um, and it's it's it's, it's 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 obviously transformed my life completely. It's, it's completely transformed my life. This football club. And later in the program, Gary talks to me about some of his favourite Manchester music. If I could tour the world with the Stone Roses for the next five years, taking the place of John Squire, that's me. I'm giving up all my business. This is everything football. You're not seeing me. I'm just having the time of my life. <laughs> Let's go back to um, to your structured life as a as an athlete. Um, people listen to that and, and go like, "Sounds hard." Others may think like, "This is exactly what I want to do in life." Yeah. But did it help that you came from a from a sports family? Yeah, I definitely did because we would all we ever did is you know we were always in sport with maybe cricket with my dad, hockey, netball, rounders with my mum, United at weekends, always involved in sport. All we ever wanted to do, the passion in the family was sport and, and United in particular, uh, Greenmount Cricket Club during the summer, learnt a lot there and I think that you have to in sport, the game starts, it, it's quite rigid 
being a, being a sportsman is rigid, but it can't be another way. If you, if you go to 22, you know, the same in the sports business as well, if you say to 22 football players, what time would you like to start training tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> what time would you like lunch? What time would you like dinner? It's getting, it's getting difficult enough as it is to manage them without actually offering them you know, committee meetings on things like this. So you have to have breakfast is 8 till 9.30, lunch is 12 till 1. You must be on the training pitch or in the gym at 9.45. You will be out there with your boots on it. And it has to be as rigid as that to set the ground rules because if you don't set the ground rules like, like that, you're just leaving it to the chance that people will just conform. They don't. <laughs> do, do you do that with your kids as well? I mean, from sport, from football, <laughs> you get a discipline, you get a respect for authorities, all that. Is that being transmitted down? I, I think that... I went away with Giggsy two weeks ago and, I, I mean, my wife always says it. I always have to know the plan of the day. I always have to know the plan of the day. I have to. So I... Not necessarily sort of the in-betweens, but the structure. So what are the eating times? Where are we eating? What are we eating? And then once you've fixed that, then what we're doing in-between can be a little bit more flexible. But I think that it's important that you do have sort of plans. I know, for instance, that, you know, I've got a meeting 9 to 11 today. I know I've got an interview with Sky at 11 to 11.30. I know that from 12 to 4 I've got, um, I've got meetings in respect of the development at St Michael's in producing the... Uh, the sales packs for the for the F&B and for the residential in the office. I know at four o'clock I'm meeting Jeff Shreves till six o'clock. I know at six o'clock I'm in Pacini's till eight. And I know at eight o'clock I'm going to go home, put the kids to bed, and I'm going to fall asleep with them. And tomorrow morning I'm having my hair cut at eight o'clock and I'm having breakfast at Kiketi at nine o'clock. And I know my I know my days. I know on Sunday it's a little bit more flexible. You know, I know I've got something at seven thirty till ten at night. I know that at some point in the morning I'm going to have breakfast, but in the day I'll leave that day. I'll let it take me but Monday I know exactly what's happening again I know I've got an interior design meeting 8 till 12 on stock exchange and 12 till 5 I've got a, a brand and product meeting on hotel football I know that's happening I, I know that I have to know I have to work like that with the amount of projects that I've got on and so I'd still work in that theory but there are some things I don't like to move I don't like to get home after 6 o'clock at night I don't so I come in at 6 o'clock in the morning but I don't like to get home after 6 o'clock at night I think that that two hours from half five till eight, I try and keep it sacrosanct if I can for the children. I think that to me is important. And I might be back on my iPad from eight till ten when they've gone to bed or half eight till ten. But I think it's important that I have those moments. And I never, if I go out, I always go out for a meal with my wife once a week. Always, always. I always find one night it's important and I switch my phone off. It's gone. <laughs> so from seven till ten, one night a week, my phone's gone. So I always try and do certain things that just keep us like a... And that's through me just thinking, you can't always be on that phone. Mm -hmm. It's not a phone, that. That is not a phone anymore. It is a hindrance to everything. It's a video, it's a communication, it's your news, it's your television. It's everything. I can be there. If I could just literally be on it 24 hours a day, just emailing, working, reading, looking at... Goals, looking at everything. It's just... Takes over your life. Yeah. Um, Professor Damien Hughes wrote a book uh, called How to Think Like Sir Alice Ferguson and shares an interesting insight into you. He says, uh, Ferguson said the most important characteristic of a successful player was character. Mm. To test this, 
He would do media training for young players, and while they presumed it was to learn how to answer questions, they never realised that it centred around the biggest losses, defeats, poorest games. Ferguson was looking for those who were prepared to learn from setbacks as opposed to blaming others. The class of 92 offered some great examples of this attitude. Gary Neville reflected on the interview and arranged a whip around so they could hire a minibus to drive to Leeds and scout their next opponents in the FA Youth Cup final. You did that? Yeah. So it is uh, already, uh, as a player, you are thinking beyond your role, beyond your responsibilities. Was that what it was as well? Yeah, I think that... I work on the theory that if you work harder than everybody else, you've got a great chance of being better. I just work on that theory. If you... If I, if I did 20 extra one-on-one defending uh, drills every day in training, five times a week, that was 100. If someone else wasn't doing that, by the end of the month, I'd done 400. By the end of the year, I'd done 4,800. I've got to be better than him. He's going to have to work a lot hard. I work on that theory that if I'm getting up at 4 or 5 in the morning, is somebody else getting up at 4 or 5 in the morning? And I suppose in things like that, if our opponents aren't watching us and we are going over to watch them, and we didn't, we didn't win that Youth Cup final, that's the problem with that one. <laughs> <laughs> so the reality of it is, that eventually, I always think you'll get your reward. You'll get your reward. And in terms of sort of things like, I, I completely agree, the mo- and I, I, I suppose in more, more than ever, you know, having been with England for four years, having been with uh, Valencia for four months, character, personality is everything. And, the, you know, he said there about want, never wanting to blame or... What, there is nothing worse than hearing someone make... give a reason as to why they failed or... You know, of course there's sometimes a reasons, but you've got to take the blame yourself. I can't... I can't open that hotel over there and blame the general manager for it failing. Why? I appointed the general manager. I can't... Go, I can't go to Spain for four months and be manager of coach of Valencia and blame the fact that there was a difficult dressing room. I didn't speak the language. Um, we had some bad luck and missed some chances. Why? Because I knew I didn't speak the language before I went. I knew that there was a difficult dressing room there. I knew they'd sacked 15 managers in 13 years. You knew all this, Gary. You didn't deal with it. You didn't overcome the difficulties that were in front of you in that four-month period. So the idea that I can sit there and blame and say oh, it was the owner's fault because they shouldn't have put me in that situation or it was the captain's fault because he didn't control the dressing room or it was because so-and-so missed five chances on the bounce in a game and we would have won. I picked that player. I took the job in those circumstances under that owner and that's why, for me, there can never be any blame on anything. Certain times, yeah, there are sometimes things that happen that are a little bit unfortunate, but generally it comes back to a decision you've made. If someone comes into an office and says, I'm not happy here, well, you didn't do your due diligence in taking the job in the first place. Now, there are obviously times where people have to take a job because they need the money, and that's where I do have some level of sympathy, and it becomes a means to an end, and it becomes an element of desperation. But people who have choice, most people have a choice. In fact, um, see if my theory is correct. Coming from the culture of Manchester United you come from, given the opportunity to take over Valencia... The last thing you do is doubt. 
you are no. so you are convinced that you can do it because nothing is impossible. Is yeah, that... and, and I did, I did, I didn't have any, I didn't have any doubts going over there. I thought it was an amazing opportunity, and you're absolutely right. When you go back to that Manchester United dressing room, it does come from that. The idea of walking into that dressing room at the end of the game and blaming another teammate. Honestly, it's that I can't, I can't think that that can happen without you being absolutely killed. I always remember my last game for United against West Brom. And I had a disaster, you know, I absolutely had a disaster. And I remember I was too wide on the opposite side of the pitch when the ball was on the right. The ball was on their right, our left, our left back side, I'm right back. And I was far too way out on the, on the opposite side of the pitch. The ball got played over Rio Ferdinand's head. And my a player ran from midfield through the gap between me and Rio Ferdinand. And it's just absolutely clear, the ball goes over your centre-back's head from the other side of the pitch, the right back has to be in to cover. It's been West Brom on the front foot. They should have had a penalty for a challenge by the woeful Gary Neville on uh, Graham Dorans shortly after. There was going to be a major issue in the Manchester United dressing room and I wouldn't ex- I wouldn't expect to see Gary Neville come back out again. At half-time, Sir Alex had a right go at it before it and Rio Ferdinand stood up and said, oh, boss, it was my fault. I... And that, to me, sums up what the dressing room I was in. He didn't... He didn't throw your teammates overboard. You didn't chuck your teammates overboard. So the idea that you go to Valencia, of course you think you can do everything, but the idea that you come out of it and it doesn't go as well as, as you can't think in results terms, you then blame others. No, it can't happen. That, I, I never blame... You can't blame people. You can be frustrated with the performance of someone or how things are going. But you can't blame others for things that go wrong when you're, 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 in, you're in my position. Gary Neville's short spell in charge of Valencia has come to an end. He's been sacked with the club involved in a battle to avoid relegation from La Liga. I saw you that Thursday of the week when you decided to go to Valencia. On the Thursday, we, we were doing an event in the cafe, yeah. uh, cafe in Gandhi. Um, and three days later, or Sunday that was, you get the call, is that how it went? Yeah. And, and you, you yeah. basically had to decide on one day. Yeah. I, I, I probably had two days to decide. I had two days to decide, probably, in essence. And everything I do, it, it usually is to plan. And I knew, I actually knew that, and I'd said it publicly before I took the Valencia job, that at the end of last season, there was a decision to make. You know, I was in media, I was in coaching with England, and I was... Um, all the business interests that I had and I knew there had to be a decision so I knew that the end of that four year contract with Roy the end of my contract with Sky was coming to an end everything was coming to an end at the same time and I knew there was a decision that had to be made and going into coaching or staying in coaching was a serious consideration um, and I thought well you're never going to get offered this opportunity again are you ever going to be sat here again where someone offers you the opportunity to manage a top four club in Spain, an English manager, an English coach? I knew that I didn't speak the language. I'd been on all the pro licence and A licence courses where foreign coaches, a lot of them are on the A licence and pro licence coaches that I was on, talked about the challenge and the actual problems that you will face if you don't speak the language. So I also knew I'd been educated in understanding it. I think the... Ch- the, the there are two or three big things that I did wrong, that I did wrong and should have been more insistent on. But I also knew that the reason that the, 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 the owner wanted me to take the job was because he didn't want a coach to come in 
lump six players out, create more upheaval, bring six new coaches in. He wanted some. He wanted sort of a. He wanted someone he could trust that had a good football mind that could hold the reins to the end of the season and not have massive upheaval in the middle of the season. And I actually, as an owner of Salford City, had genuine sort of, yeah, that's the right thing to do. And from my personal point of view, felt this is an opportunity that I'm probably never going to get offered again. It definitely was a fast track. There's no doubt about that. It was a fast track. But then in life, sometimes you just have to, you have to go. And that's not how I've worked. I've always been planned. I've always thought, you know, I'll work methodically towards a goal. In fact, I'll tell you more. I mean, if there is any anybody that I could hear talking about football that understands and respects the process, it's you. Yeah, absolutely. You obviously yes. come from Manchester United, where the yeah. process was everything. Yeah. And you are now involved in, in yeah. architectural projects where some of it you've been involved for what, five, six years I, before I, I actually... Did, I did my first development at the age of 22. I was a contractor from the age of 28 to 32 whilst I was still playing football. I've owned a, a design consultancy for 15 years. So in terms of development, I haven't just turned up to be a developer. I did a, a long... So so why you think that at that particular moment, the process suppose, was not necessary? Because I think that, I suppose in some ways, what I was, I suppose, calling upon in my own mind was that I'd been a coach with England as assistant coach for four years. At, it's a high level. You know, being to a World Cup and European Championships and working with the best Premier League players is a high level of coaching. It's a, you know, I felt as though, there you go. I also feel like in my own way that I can adapt, that I can, that I can cover my deficiencies. I did it as a player. That actually I can understand where I'm not strong and where I'm not, uh, where I'm weak and cover for it. I wasn't the quickest. I wasn't the most agile but I always felt that I could cover it some way, whether it be through physical aggression, whether it be through positioning, tactical positioning. I always felt, if, if I play against Thierry Henry, which he always used to come out to that left-hand side, he's six foot two, he's skillful, he's the quickest thing you've ever seen, he's mentally strong. So how does Gary Neville even stand the chance? I have to find a way. I have to find a way. And that, 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 that I played at the top level for 20 years and knew that at times, you play against Figo or Ronaldo in the championships, but I was never embarrassed by these players. I can count on one hand the amount of times I was embarrassed by these players. I had enough understanding to see my own deficiencies. And I suppose I took that as being, uh, well, OK, I'm quite experienced in, uh, in, this, in, this, in football. I'm, I've been through the, the, the coaching badges. I've actually been with a coach with England for four years. Yes, I've ever been a head coach before. Would it be preferable to be a head coach before you went to the... Would it be preferable you spoke some of the language? Would it have been wonderful if I'd been able to say, right, OK, for the next six months I'm going to move to Spain. I'm going to actually immerse myself in the culture, learn the language. Like I suppose Pep did before he went to, uh, to Munich, he learned the language before he got there. Like I suppose Conte's done before he's come to England, other, other managers have done it. Yeah, that's a perfect world, but that wasn't presented to me as the option. To be fair, well, it wasn't an option. So it wasn't a case of I thought I could circumvent process. It was a case of I've got a level of I've got a, a level of experience with England. I've worked alongside elite players with England and seen the challenges of working alongside elite players. And can I cover my deficiencies in lack of experience? Not understand. And also, could I turn around the mentality of a team? Could I change the mentality of a team that was struggling? They were struggling mentally. They were struggling physically. Um, and there was pressure on. And you know, even this season, when I watch them now and I look at the game so far, 
I look at the goals and I think, oh, they're the goals I was conceding last season. You know, without having a long time to change the mentality of that dressing room and to change the performance of that dressing room, you know, I don't believe the work I did. I mean, people will say, oh, the work I did. I know the work I was doing and over a period of time it would have offered improvement. I know someone else will come in and say, well, I don't think you were doing good work. But then, that's the way football is. That's the way always football is. Results dictate whatever. Results dictate. You know, I know managers that don't do any work and get results. You know, I know managers that come in and, you know, I won't say do a five-a-side and make, keep the players happy, take them to spar and get results. That's mm-hmm. happened. You know that's happened. Mm-hmm. So I think from that point of view, it, it's not an exact science that you have to be the best coach in the world to get the best results. Sometimes it's about different things. Sometimes it's about communication, man management. I'm hearing stories out coming out of United where the players feel 10 foot tall with Jose. They feel 10 foot tall. They feel like they've got their, their belief back because he's a fantastic man manager. Sir Alex, didn't, Sir Alex never put one coaching session on in 20 years. Not one. I think one one day. <laughs> But in 20 years, he never did one training session. You, you were talking about Valencia. You said two things that will be I would do different now, two things that I got wrong. One, I guess, is the language and the communication, perhaps preparing yourself better yeah. for that. What was, what was the, the other one? I think that generally, when you go into any business, you, I've, I've said it here, I've got four or five people around me that I really, that I really trust and know and have got experience. And under, I think that when you go into a new club, to really affect the mentality of the medical room, the, the, the gym, the training pitch, you need all those people to be your people. And I have to say, I was supported brilliantly by the two or three members of staff, but we're all 40 years of age. We're all 40, you know, Angulo was 38, Jordi was 37, Phil was 38, I was 40. We just didn't have, probably, that calming influence and the communication. I always remember speaking to Maurizio Pochettino, I've been to see him a few times, and I, I love him to bits in terms of the work that he does and he, he, he talks to me about his assistant uh, Jesus, Jesus um, being the most incredible help to him in the first six to eight months at Southampton in terms of being able to communicate his message as his message was wanting to be communicated and I had Phil there but even Phil was only five months in so even Phil wasn't nowhere as good as he is at Spanish he wasn't at that time able to conduct properly the detail of things Um And everyone was trying. We, we, we made sure our, our, our coach's room was Spanish. We spoke Spanish wherever possible, and sometimes it was funny. But we always tried to communicate in Spanish. I had lessons four times a week. Um, I loved the city. I loved my time there. Part of me wishes I was still there because I, the, I loved the life. I loved the city. I loved the people. Um, contrary to two weeks ago, there was something that said, you know, they're, they're the angriest fans, and it was almost like it was a criticism. They were angry because they had a right to be angry after the Barcelona game. Um, they were fantastic fans. Did when I saw them high, they were high. But, you know, it's, to me, I think having people around you that had the experience and the communication skills, we just probably didn't, didn't, probably didn't happen. Did that experience make you doubt so much that you don't want to get involved in the coaching side, or... Or is it the opposite? Do you want to now no, prove the Valencia, everybody wrong? No, the Valencia experience didn't put me off coaching. Um, I think that ultimately uh, losing our jobs with England and not carrying on with that is, if you like, the final nail in the coffin. 
Um, I knew that I had to make a decision anyway. People will think it's, it's punditry or, oh, he's gone into punditry. I'm not going into punditry. I'm not going into punditry over, over coaching. I've immersed myself in these businesses over coaching. I'm every single day. Punditry is, what, what is punditry? Punditry is being able to comment on a game of football and offer what I would believe to be insight of the professional game. I genuinely think I can do that quite comfortably. That's not being arrogant. I genuinely believe I can do that. I've got good experiences and I'm able to communicate. I, every day, I'm not thinking about punditry. I love going watching the matches. I'll start to think about the Manchester derby properly in the detail form tonight, knowing that I'll have, oh, I've watched the games already, you know, Manchester United and City's games, so I understand the players. But generally, in terms of what, what sort of messages do I want to portray into the game... Will be starting to be thought about tonight. I don't. I don't sit there with my iPad today thinking what we're going to re- say because you have to be fluent. I, I, I tried to do that in the early days. The best opinions I have in football are when it comes freely as I see it during the game. Or and um, so for me, I, 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 the England job was a hammer blow. Uh, losing obviously Roy losing his job, me and Ray losing our jobs, um, not being you know able to carry on I would have carried on in, I would carry on with the FA I would have carried on with England I believed in those young players um, still believe in them your bags Roy Otter. we've had enough of you we've had all the talk, we've had all the chat, we've had all the promises we've had all the excuses and it's never ever ever changed you, Ray Lewington Gary Neville, pack your bags That experience with England, is that staying on as in, uh, are you feeding the new people with what you learned from what you did I've spoken I, 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 I spoke to Dan Ashworth after the tournament I've spoken to Roy a few times since, but I've spoken to Nash after the tournament to share my thoughts. And I have to say, those thoughts are all positive. I don't carry, I don't say, oh, he, they're a good set of lads. They work that absolute, and it's difficult for fans to accept this with what happened against Iceland. They worked as hard as they possibly could. They give their all. And what was missing? Leadership? What was missing? Uh, instructions? What was missing uh, a pattern? I'll be uh, honest with you. If I, if, if, if I was being, I, I think that you, every team needs a spine of characters and leaders who, who, who pull you around when the when the when the difficult moment. And against Iceland, when quite obviously after half an hour it, it, it fell to pieces, the performance there was nothing to be able to call upon on the pit. But why, why did you get into that difficult position in the first place? Is there, is there not a pattern as a team? Is it not a... No, we, a we, but again, if you look at the last two years, we won, four, we won, we won 10 qualifiers. We, won, we were unbeaten in 14. We'd beaten, we'd beaten France. We'd beaten Germany. In Germany. There was no signs of what came against Ireland. There is no... You look back over the previous two years, Spain away, you can get beat... Spain away, actually, we could have, we could have probably drawn that game if we'd, we'd taken our chances on the counter-attack. I think Spain were better and deserved to win. And that was our most disappointing performance actually in the two years, and one that we learned from to go and beat Germany because actually we were more bold, which we went for them, pressed mm-hmm. them, went for them. We're in Spain, we sort of sat off and tried to counterattack, and there was no signs that that Iceland performance was there because there's nothing in the two years of confidence, of strength, of football, of quality that said we are going to 
collapse like that from a mental point of view. It was a collapse. So it was a mental collapse. And I, for everybody, not for not just you know, I'm not blaming individuals. If you asked any player, if you look at the player comments after the game that spoke, they, they probably could never be able to tell you how it went so wrong in that last hour against Iceland. People say to me on Twitter all the time, the fans say, it's okay, Gary, offering an opinion on Liverpool v Arsenal, but I wouldn't know what went wrong against Iceland. I'd love to be able to tell them. Hmm. Other than to say, it was just a complete mental breakdown in that last hour. It was nothing, something just happened. People, people just got tense. You could sense the atmosphere in the stadium. We won the look playing well, and we conceded from throwing. And then they, then they score a goal, which is a soft goal at the best. Gilfie Sigurdsson trying to turn it around the corner. Sig Dawson can get a shot in. Oh, it's in. Joe Hart got a left hand to it, but couldn't keep it out. Is this going to be a disastrous night for England unfolding in Nice? And all of a sudden you could hear, I think there was like a throwing or a, a ball got kicked out of play and the England fans went, oh, in the stadium. And you could generally just see, visibly, the confidence just drain out of the players. And I don't know how that happened. I don't know why it happened. Um... If we have to take responsibility as the coaching staff, and we did. We, you, you, you fall on your sword, but I just don't know what happened. If I can compare it to Spain, there was a moment where we felt like that and we knew we were going to be knocked out in the quarterfinals of whatever yeah. competition. It was going to happen, and one day it didn't. Yeah. So that day just just uh, made us change the yeah. way we thought. No, completely. I, and it wasn't a good game. It, I, it just I, went through. I still believe... Look at, look at my experiences with England... Going back to uh, 2012, penalty shootout against Italy, 96, penalty shootout against Germany, Argentina, 98, um, 2004 and 6 quarterfinals where we had a good team, penalty shootout against Portugal twice, we're in the semi-finals and finals of competitions by penalty shootout. England have been so close in the last 20 years, so close. A penalty shootout or two victory, and we're in finals of tournaments. So be clear, the line is fine. It's be- fine. No, Iceland is not fine, but there have been experiences four or five in the last twenty years where it's been so fine the line, where Cristiano Ronaldo smashes it in the top corner in the penalty, and we don't. And that's the difference. Sometimes is the difference between winning a tournament and not. The the moment for us was a quarterfinals. Penalty shootout against Italy, we won that penalty yes. shootout. There was nothing separating the sides from that day. Um, so we'll have to wait for, for that no, moment. I, and I still believe in a successful England. I still think that moment, that fine line, will, that will be on the right side of it. I still think that because it's going to happen. I've had faith in that. It's the wrong time to say it. It's the wrong time for people to believe it. I believe it. I genuinely believe it. And it's going to happen because it, the, the lines are so fine. And I look at that Portugal team that won the tournament. It wasn't a fantastic Portugal team, but they had that resilience. They had that sort of something. They have a they have a, they have a guy there leading them, who thinks he's unbreakable. And when you have unbreakable people, the rest of them are unbreakable. And that's what we had at United sometimes with a Cantona or a Keane or a Ferguson. Generally, all the time, he stands there outside that changing room before you walk out, Sir Alex Ferguson, and make sure he's the first person the opposition sees. He walks out the door. And you know that the other team, a lot of them, are down before we've even started because you've got that person at the front who's just lifting you all up. And the reality of it is that that's what Portugal had. They had that leader, they had that guy to hang off 
you know, Barcelona have had Messi or they had people you know, in the last 10, 15 years. They're great teams. They have someone they can hang off. And with England, I suppose in some ways, that world global football star, have we had one in the last 40 years? Yeah, I suppose David Beckham is a global star. Paul Gascoigne was a global star. Wayne Rooney is a global star. Have, have we been able to deliver in tournaments? No. To the level that a Cristiano Ronaldo, that's another level. That's a that's up here. You know. Is is Gary Neville the coach then gone? Because I believe you've had offers. Yeah, I think I'll be honest with you, and I say this now. Um, I, I I always say never say never because my love for football is too great. But I also I genuinely believe it will be very difficult and very. I think it would be difficult for me to go back into coaching because of my commitment now to so many different things and I've immersed myself in it and I've committed to other partners, other investors. It's my obligation to deliver Salford City to the Football League. It's my obligation. It's my obligation to roll out hotel football internationally. It's my obligation to deliver um, high-end restaurants with Michael O'Hare, who's going to sign up with us in the next month. It's my obligation to deliver St Michael's in the next four years, the best development, in, I believe, in Manchester. I can't now go back into coaching in the short term in the next five years. And the reality of it is, I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, I think I could, I, I, I could, it could be, yeah, that I'm no longer ever a coach in football, but that's not a loss. People, Some people might think it is, but generally the fact of the matter is it's, it's, it's not a, a loss to me. Um, it was a decision that could have happened anyway I think that I feel sad about the fact that I hear Martin Glenn said a month ago well, all ex-players go into punditry for the money it's not that simple Martin it's not that simple that's, a, that's an excuse you know I don't use excuses he's, he's got to find the solution not tell me the problem find the solution Holland have got the solution Ajax have got the solution. Barcelona have the solution. Football clubs have the solution. There are, there are models out there that you know they, they, they create pathways. They do it. They, they 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 keep you on the pathway. You know the the FA Roy Hodgson the FA invested in me for four years. I'm the most experienced I've ever been. Yet you get chucked overboard. You know, I've been to three. I've been to eight tournaments as a player, three as a coach. I've been to. I'm probably the only English coach, English coach that's managed in La Liga, a top four club, in the last 15, 20 years. But even if it's only for four months, I'm only forty-one years of age, and you're regarded as a sort of fail. You're regarded as a failure, and the reality of it is, the investment has to come through defeat and victory. You can't just say a month before the tournament. Royal Summer with a new, for my view, is of course after Iceland you have, you have to go. It's dif- it's difficult, but the pathway of young coaches cannot be just based upon a run of defeats or other victories, or else you're forever changing who you're investing. That's why I have to say, Roy, for me, in all these selection meetings that we had, but him in particular, obviously as the manager, made the decisions. We didn't pick a Mark Noble even though he might have been better form than Ross Barkley, because we invested in Ross Barkley. He was our man. He was the person that was the most talented player. We didn't pick a Danny Drinkwater in the end over Jack Wilshire, 
because we had faith in the ability of Jack Wilshire. That's not to say no one can break in, but when you go down a route of I'm investing in John Stones, you can't then pick Phil Jagielka over John Stones for the tournament. You have to invest in John Stones, even though Phil Jagielka might be in better form. So we decided over a two-year period, and Roy was the architect, obviously, of this, that, and I think it's the same with coaches. Once you've put your hat on an investment into a coach as an association or as a club, you've invested in him, getting through those bad times. It goes back to the idea of process. You, you were following a process. Yeah. Is there not enough process in English football? Is there too much fear? And is there not enough good handling of failure? Is that some well, of the things that are stopping? The, we react to results. The DNA was prominent pre-tournament. It's been thrown in the bin since the tournament by the CEO and the, the new management team. It's been thrown in the bin. It's been discarded publicly. The DNA was prominent in our build-up pre-tournament in terms of you know, playing a certain type of way, dominating possession. We dominated possession in all four games in the tournament. We were moving towards the outcome that the FA wanted through their technical piece of work that they'd done. You know, I asked Dan Ashworth myself ten days before, well, during the tournament, how we meet. You know, does it meet absolutely the most talented players playing quite dynamic systems, four-three-three, interchanging midfield, diamond, interchanging systems? That was then held as a negative against. Oh, I didn't know the best system. Whereas people manoeuvre between systems all the time, um, and I think it's a shame that what I felt was growing falls off the edge of a cliff after a game like Iceland but it's inevitable because that's football that's, where it, that's where it's the way it is I'm hearing people arriving so, to, uh, lads, to, uh, lads could you give us 10 minutes please is that okay is that okay thanks what's the thing that really drives you um, to deliver exciting projects to deliver different types of projects, unique ones, ones that are different, ones that don't, if perfect world, haven't been delivered before, to stretch the boundaries, to do things that are exciting to me personally. They're the, they're the drivers. But deep, deeper than that, are you trying to impress somebody? You, your family, your people close to you? You can't impress my family. <laughs> I impress my family. <laughs> I'm completely different at home. <laughs> Uh, I have no influence. Um, what are you like at home? Different, completely different. You relax. You, you take the you take the mask it off. Yeah, it really helps. I've got two girls. It really helps because they just completely melt me, and I, 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 they, it's just like I'm nothing. <laughs> you wouldn't think I could make a decision. I don't make a decision at home. You know that they, they, you know, my wife and they, they they do what they want. In some ways, they. They, you feel that there's two Gary Nevilles then? Yeah, I think I'm different at home. I mean, I'm incredibly loyal to my family in terms of... So I love my family. I always go for family meals tw- twice a week. If I can, Friday and Sunday, I always go for family meals. I think it's, in, it's critically important, always have done. Yeah, I think I am different at home. I am Good. different at home. Even though I said before I need to know when I'm eating and things like that, I'm completely different in terms of my manner than I would be in a work environment. And which one is the real one? Probably this one. Probably this one, really. I think I think the girls have changed me a little bit at home because they just a smile and I can forget about everything that's gone on during the day. Good if it's bad, I've learned so I could come home and I could I could I could 
for, not forget, you never forget, but you could remove yourself from it because of them. Um, I suppose, I don't know, it's, but I think most people are like that though, aren't they, with children? When they have children, they sort of, they're, 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 they're a bit different. They, they, they're an escape, children, sometimes, if, you, you know, if you're busy during the day. Uh, with the mag- magic of radio, we are able to jump to 2026. This is 2026 <laughs> now. The uh, where are we? The 9th of uh, September of 10 years from now. Yeah. Where are you? I don't know. I know what I want to do. I've always said that. I know what I want to do. Um, it's something that I'll never say. But I know what I want to do. Um, and, you know, I think from my point of view, that is sort of an end goal that I have to be able to, 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 to deliver on. But that's, you know, I, I think big. I think very big. Um, I don't think small. Um, I think that, you know, from my point of view, I can deliver a, a million-pound house or a million-pound property development at the age of 22. It becomes five, six million at the age of 28. It becomes 20 million at the age of 35, and now that one over there is 200. So I, I, I think... And What's that after one, 200? Bigger. Not bigger necessarily. Not, not, not every project is related to capital, yeah, yeah. but the, the importance of the project. The importance of the project. But do you feel you're in a running machine? Yeah. That you cannot come off it? No, I can't come off it. I can't, it's impossible for me to come off it now. But de- development is needed... Development is needed because I always say if Manchester's got cranes You answer that or no. <laughs> Manchester's got cranes, then it means that the construction force is working, the service industries are working, that there is employment, there is new buildings, new jobs, and it needs that. It, we, we need that. And I always try I always try, as every, and it's not always possible to try and get this across, particularly when you're doing something like that over there, is to try and make sure that it has the people, that the, you know, Salford City or the Stock Exchange or you know, St Michael's, it has, to be some, it has to be something that think, well, okay, how are the people of Manchester, how are the people of Salford going to use this? How are they going to enjoy it? And I always think that way, because I do believe I'm no, I'm no different than anybody else from Manchester. I, I love this city and I love the people, um, and but I want to be successful. I want, I want to I want to do things. I want to achieve things. But we were in the running machine with you, and you gone to your projects. Uh, if we go back to the running machine, um, stopping it and coming off of it, will that be facing a different life, different things that perhaps you don't want to the next deal ten, with? Or? The next ten years of my life, five years of my life, are set. I know I've got to deliver four or five significant projects. I've got to get a football club into the Football League. I've got to get St Michael's delivered and built. I've got to get an education programme that will be announced in two weeks, up and delivered. Um, I've got to get the Stock Exchange established as a boutique hotel with Michael O'Hare in and try and get the highest possible quality of restaurant uh, product into Manchester. Um, and I probably forgot one or two other things there, but they're, 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 they're all set out. The, uh, the growth of hotel football, nationally and internationally, 
I've, that's my they're my responsibilities. Those five sort of strands there. There might be six, of them. <laughs> but you know, I, I've got to deliver those. I am the, if you like, lead partner investor. Not necessarily the majority shareholder, but I'm the concept creator or lead investor on all those five projects. I've got to deliver them. So the script is more or less written, and it has to go that way. Yeah. Do you see yourself to finish this conversation? Of do you see yourself at this particular point in time placed in a narrow corridor with huge walls that you know you can see the yeah. light at the end or you see in a huge field happy and free uh, because you're doing what you want to no it feels quite focused at this moment in time it feels quite I know that you know I, I feel like that yeah I, I, it's narrow and walls uh, it's, not, it's not good to be it's not good to be in a field and be free It's like people who say, I did an interview with um, a part of the book we did for Salford of the week and we were talking, Scholes who sat opposite, you know, you must have enjoyed your football career. How can you enjoy it? When you're actually doing it, you've got to win. You play for Manchester United. You're nervous, you're anxious, you're not, not, not nervous and anxious. You, 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 there's a massive responsibility. If you said to me today, there's a Manchester City and Manchester United players that are preparing for the derby tomorrow, what would I be... What Enjoyment is... having that astraya at five o'clock on holiday till seven, when the sun's just going down. That's enjoyment. That's relaxation. That's the field with all the tulips in. We're doing... Where you, where you carry a responsibility in work, it's... That's, it's not enjoyment. That's like a... A determination. It's not a feeling of, uh, and it's not a feeling of enjoyment. It's just, it's too big a responsibility. So I, I, this idea of sort of free fields and it's oh, I'm, I think that if you're doing that, you're probably. I'd love your life. I don't feel like that. I never felt like that. I don't think. I don't think I can ever feel like that. It doesn't. doesn't, doesn't uh, only being on holiday with my family. Do I, do I feel like that? Or going out for a meal and I'm turning my phone off, and you know you have that first glass of red wine and some. Starters come and you think, "Whew, that's a nice moment! What a lovely moment that is! That's that's relaxation, and enjoyment, and I like those moments." But that's not your job, and I do, I do love what I do, but I'm not sat here now waiting for this meeting that's coming in for two hours, thinking, "I come in team, I'm really going to enjoy this." <laughs> You're working, you're focusing, you're determined, you've got to, you've got to deliver things. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm weird. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie. Thank you. We had to stop the chat with Gary Neville because he had a design meeting for one of his developments and he was late for that meeting of course while we waited we went for a coffee in the Atlas coffee shop opposite the Hacienda for those of you that know Manchester you know what I'm talking about very iconic part of town and now we must found his car which is parked around his office somewhere here uh, because we're going to drive around Manchester he's Manchester ah, I think that one must certainly be his car I'm Guillem Balaguer and you're listening to Gary Neville My Manchester, a walkthrough and a drive-by of the life and career of Gary Neville. In the next section, Gary took us for a visit of his city in his car You get a street, a big street and uh 
minutes later you are in Old Trafford which is supposed to be outside town <laughs> so uh, it is a small town if you think of it no it is I think that people maybe out of Manchester might not reckon realise that sort of Manchester City and Manchester United they are within a mile and a half of the city centre that you can walk from Deansgate in the main central part of the city and be at the ground in 15-20 minutes walking and five minutes in a car it's it is connected I mean we're we're driving down here now away from like say out of Manchester from Castlefield towards Old Trafford and another mile down the road and we're in Media City just here on the left mm-hmm. um, where obviously the BBC have moved to so I think it is so connected and it won't be long before the surrounding uh, land holdings of Manchester United Media City the Trafford Centre merge into becoming almost like an extended city centre really because I think that's the way London's gone over the years obviously where different sort of sections of the city have appeared and become more prominent you know people tell me that 30-40 years ago Notting Hill was seen as some type of not, not, not slum but certainly a different completely different type of area whereas now it's one of the most prominent areas and that's the way Manchester definitely is going it's the way cities go and you, you deal with uh, projects and, and people that uh, build cities is it growing too quickly? I don't think it's growing too quickly because when I look at what, for instance, Manchester City have done over the east side of Manchester and what it used to be and what it is now, you know, it has to be an improvement. It has to be better. When you think of Media City and Salford Keys here, where, like I said, where, where the BBC, I was, I was in there yesterday, and it's just transformed. Uh, it's just completely different. Um, and so, no, I, I don't think it's growing too quickly. I think it's on the right trajectory. Um, it definitely halted during the recession of seven or eight years ago. Um, now it feels like it's got sort of you know, moving forward and shifting forwards again. Where, where are we heading to now? We're just going to come back down the road um, away from Media City. I'm going to take you towards back into the city centre, uh, towards. Do it a bit. Do you, do you want me to take that was, that was somebody <laughs> does it happen often somebody another car next to you blows <laughs> the whip and says hello it does happen it happened this morning a guy at 6 o'clock in the morning was on to the way, way to the hotel pulled his window down oh, you've made my day I thought right great <laughs> it's better than the other the alternative of getting abused <laughs> that, that happens as well um, no, we're, we're just heading into Media City now um, which I say as you drive down here, you know, you never would have thought that this 15, 20 years ago would have been like this. What was it before? I think it was just Docklands and, and I don't know, uh, industrial I would think and wasteland, I, I don't know the reality, I don't even know, but now look at the apartments yeah, yeah. that are popping up um, and when we get into it down here you know, you've got universities down here, you've got colleges uh, you've obviously got media centres, ITV, BBC. Um, it, it's just transformed, and you'll see when you come when you enter into it. If you were on your own here, what would what music would you be listening to? I don't listen to music in car. No, no, I don't love music. I just don't. Sometimes, if I'm out on my phone, I just have peace. <laughs> <laughs> and just you know, just important. And I, I actually started to bike into Manchester the last couple of months. I bought a bike. It's actually a thinking time. Mm-hmm. is important to actually think about what you're about to do I think that that's what I've started I love biking in you know it takes me about 45 minutes to 50 minutes obviously I'm not on my phone I'm not listening to music and I'm just thinking mm-hmm. you almost disappear I think that's what I do when I'm in the car 
sometimes talk to myself. It's weird that. I don't know if other people do it, but I talk to myself to try and play out, even thinking what am I going to say in an interview or things like that. I say, oh, how, how might an interview go? No, I've not, not done it before this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is just media city now, as you see on the left with the BBC. Yeah. Uh, and on the front there where the water is, there's all restaurants and bars and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but normally, if you had to listen to music, what would be your, your kind? It would be... Always have to have a guitar in it. That's the criteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in a band, you'll be the guitar. The guitar. I'll be the, yeah. I would, try, I would love to be a guitarist in a band. <laughs> I would give up all my businesses and everything. <laughs> If you could say to me, I could tour the world with the Stone Roses for the next five years. Oh yeah, because we're not talking about a local band. You're saying Stone yeah, Roses and tour could, the world. Yeah. If I could tour the world with the Stone Roses for the next five years, taking a place, John Squire. <laughs> That's me. I'm giving up all my businesses, everything football. You're not seeing me. I'm just having the time of my life. If I could play guitar, that well, well, I can. One question: Can you play the guitar? No, I can. I can strum along. I can play. I've got. I, I can do all the chords because when I moved into Manchester at the age of 26, I, I learned for about four years, so I can play the chords. And I had to do a guest appearance with the Charlatans um, with Tim Burgess, who is fantastic on the roof at the hotel. experience that I've had and I did say one day when I, I think I was 35 I said I'm going to play a concert for my 40th birthday and I didn't do it I had a bet with my mate I was going to play a concert for an hour for my 40th birthday with a band with me and obviously somebody else have to sing because I'm useless can you can you sort it out with Stone Roses like uh, you remember Stuart Sutcliffe the fifth Beatle yeah. uh, who went to Hamburg <laughs> with him and uh, with them Uh, and they unplugged his guitar, he'd never realised, but he still wasn't on the stage, doing the whole thing, <laughs> apart could from playing. That, yeah. Yeah, you could do that, yeah. So Stone Roses is your... I, I'm just giving them as an example, and I do like Manchester-based music and Northern music, I, 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 I like that a lot, um, but it doesn't sort of exclude the fact that I wouldn't listen to somebody else, um, but I think that that's, yeah... So, because you go to bed early and you have to be home by eight-ish, you, you don't get seen in Madame Fred's and places like that? No. What is that? <laughs> it's Where? a lovely music club, which I'm going to tonight. In Manchester? Yeah. Where? Uh, it's small, uh, Northern Quarter. Oh, okay. No, I've never been. And you may Northern. find there one day, um, uh, you know, Dominic Torren, who is the uh, assistant manager to um, Pep Guardiola playing okay. the saxo. Right. Uh, I, when I lived in Manchester, I used to go to. Um, I used to follow a band actually, like my guitar teacher was in a band, um, and I used to go and watch them in the sort of little bars and, and sort of clubs. And I used to enjoy it with, with my wife at the time when we lived in Manchester. And it's an escape. Concert actually, it's, it's about enjoyment. Yeah. You know, you, you go and watch a concert and again. Your phone's not. On. It revol- I think enjoyment in life revolves around your phone not being on. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> true that. It's happening there. Honestly, I think you can follow that rule. You're normally in a more relaxed mode when your phone's not on. Do you ever escape somewhere, as in there's a place in Manchester that you go to uh, just because it reminds you of something or it brings you back? I go, I go to, I've been going to Puccini's in Swinton, uh, the Italian, for 22 years. And I'm going tonight, funnily enough. And that is where I would go in there and feel at home. Yeah, and, you know, Mick and Michael... Um, sometimes Nutter's Andrew Nutter's restaurant in uh, Rochdale and Edenfield I go there and again I feel like I'm escaping um, like I'm away from 
you know, everyone has those places, don't they? Those places that they go where you feel like, I love it here. And that, they, they would be probably my two in Manchester, I would say, in this, this sort of area, even though it's not in Manchester, uh, not us. Why, why didn't you get involved with Bury, Bury instead of uh, South City? A lot of Bury fans ask me that. Um, one of the, I have a great belief in football that when a club is historic, when a club is set and historic like Bury is, it's been a hundred odd years old. I can't change Bury, the mentality mm. of the people in Bury. It's not my club; it's their club. It's the fans' club. Whereas Your mum's club. My mum's club, yeah. Whereas with Salford, they had an average gate of eighty people. So the only people that I feel really any sort of what would be holding to at Salford are the original 40 season ticket holders which we fixed their season ticket prices I think for 10 years and mm-hmm. their honorary members and the committee who had served the club so there's 54 people other than those 54 people everybody that's come since is new mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're new the ours the people who've come since we came in so the our fans that have joined the club and we wanted to mould a club with a majority of our fans so that we couldn't sort of be told this is not how we do it here in Bury, this is not how we do it here in Macclesfield, this is how we, no, no, this is how you do it in Salford because it's our club. So the 40 fans, we meet with them once, twice a year, we get the feedback, I'll present the new stadium to them before it goes out to the public. The committee run the club and we try as little as possible to interfere with them. So I think it's very important for me that owners don't own football clubs, they guard it, they look after it. Whereas actually with Salford, I felt like we could have a major influence and actually the people there, would it would be our investment into the stadium, it would be our new fans, it would be our... I think that, to me, in there's no doubt we'll spend more money getting Salford up into the Football League than we could have just taken over Berry mm-hmm. or a club like that. But that wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have been my club. It wouldn't yeah. have been my, I can mould this, we can mould this club into an ethos that we want whereas you can't mould Bury into an ethos that we want because it's not actually our club it's the fans club they've been there for a long time the um, I'm not sure if, if it's right to compare it but say at Biggles or United we are taking over a club and taking a different direction to the guys that were there mm. so the difficulty is how to take them with you uh, because you've got a very clear idea what you want to do but you want to bring them with you so it's, yeah. It's not easy. The big thing, I think, from our point of view is building up the trust with the existing people that actually they think, one, you're not going to take the jobs. Uh-huh. You're not going to remove their enjoyment of what they do. There are 14 people there who've dedicated their lives to Salford City. Honestly, I will fight. If a player comes and says, I want to leave, I'll help him out the door. If a manager comes to me and says, I want to leave... I'll help him out of the door. If one of those committee members came and says, Gary, I want to leave, I'd be devastated and I'd want to keep them, come what may. Yeah. Because they are the club, they are the soul of the club, they're the reason everyone originally came. The effort, the pa- we can't replace what they put in. Mm-hmm. I cannot replace what they put in as a, an owner, neither can any of the other lads. And for me, that's critical in a football club um, that you have that essence of the people who love the club there. But you have, but again, you have to change it as well. So you have to change it, and I think that communication is, is important. I wouldn't say that it's always been brilliant between, because sometimes things move too fast and you do get on with things. But we've tried to stick to our side, and we leave the. You know, we turn up on a match day half an hour before the game, twenty minutes before the game. That game is on, and it's all happened without us knowing 
anything that's happened during the week. That's not saying we don't appreciate it. We do allow them to get on with the running of the club. Mm-hmm. Talking of clubs, we've come from Media City uh, very close. It's like not even three, four minutes. is Old Trafford on the, on the right-hand yes. side here. Yeah. Uh, you see Old Trafford and you see home or place of work? Um, the, the, the Old Trafford to me is magic. As a kid, it was the most mesmerising experience, and uh, even now, tomorrow's the derby. You know, I'll walk in, I'll go up to the commentary box tomorrow, and it's a thrill. It should be a thrill every time you walk into that ground. If you're a fan of Manchester United and comes to this ground, it's the most incredible experience. And I think I, I see it as my football home. I, I always have to, and always will. Uh, it's the club I support. There'll be an almighty roar as the players dance behind him. There it is. Manchester United's 17th league title. Their 10th in the Premier League. We're heading... Uh, oh, Sir Alex Ferguson, what is it? Stadium in front of us, and uh, what's that building there on the left? <laughs> Hotel football. It's a, it's a pretty sight from here, isn't it? It's, you architecturally, there's not a contract between both of them, more or less. Is is were you thinking of the stadium when you were designing the? Yeah, we tried to, but obviously you have to. I mean, that's what the one of the planning planning requirements is to make sure it fits in with the. And you can see how many people obviously are moving around it today. Obviously, it's it's Derby weekend, so. There's lots of people moving around the hotel and the ground on the forecourt, um, and you know, yeah, it's, it's in a very prominent position. It looks into one of the, you know the most famous football club in the world, along with Barcelona and Real Madrid, and you know, it's, it is a fantastic building. Do you remember the first day you walked into Old Trafford, towards it, it and into it? Because it's so long ago, I, I, I always remember the feeling of leaving my dad down in the the concourse having a drink with his mates and me walking up and sitting there on my own and that view of the case stand and walking out and seeing the old Trafford and just sitting there for an hour and a half because we used to get there really early I always remember that moment I always remember driving over Barton Bridge from where we lived and thinking we're nearly there now I always remember those moments I always remember sitting in Marina's Grill um, where we used to go for sausage and chips or fish and chips before the game on the corner here, just down here on the right, actually. So I remember moments, but I don't remember specifics. Is it that the first time or that? How old were you? Uh, when I first came to the ground, I was four, I think. Wow. Four, four or five. My dad took me thinking that you know, if you can't sit through it, I think his, I think his words were to him, if you can't sit through it, then you won't. You know, I'm not taking him again, and I, and I did. And from that moment, Phil came really young, well, a year or so after that. You know, we, we were taken from really early age. And that's a shame now in terms of, you know, you don't see a lot as much of that anymore. Um, too expensive. It's expensive. Yeah. It's just, yeah, really expensive. It's a shame. So you went through every single possible filter to actually become a legend at the club from that four-year-old that came to the stadium. To, if anybody wonders what, what what made you go through those filters, they have to listen to the conversation we had because it's what is all there, isn't it? The drive, motivation, dreams, uh, hard work. Am I leaving anything out? No, I just 
I, I, I genuinely think, like I said to you, those players that played in that dressing room under Sir Alex Ferguson the twenty, they were all the same. I genuinely think they were all the same. That everybody just seemed to be at it every single minute of every day, and there was a passion for the club. You know, Oliver Solskjaer joined, didn't have a history of Manchester United. Patrice Evra joined, and they became fans. They became more than just players. Mm-hmm. They were fan- They became fans of the club. You know, and what's inspiring is when you have someone like, say, Patrice Evra who comes over, who had a difficult first six months, but then three, four years later, he's there shouting in the dressing room before you go out. And I wasn't a shouter in the dressing room. Um, and you think, wow, it's in his heart now. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's gripped him. And I always think Manchester United, even if you're not a fan, but when you're exposed to it, even as an away fan coming to the ground, I think it grips you in some way. Maybe that's an arrogance. People say that's arrogant, but I think it grips you, Manchester United. Even if you hate United, it's gripped you. Hmm. That's the way I always look at it. It's quite common knowledge that uh, Pep Guardiola was approached before Jose Mourinho. Which one of the two fit better all these that you're talking about, that essence of the club? If, if any. I think Mourinho's profile of player fits more in the sense that I'm only looking at what he's signed so far so Bay is a centre half strong physical quick Pogba physical Manchester United style of play has always been based around physical quick play speed power it's always been like that mm-hmm. it's always been like that obviously good football as well but it's always had that strength that spine that toughness to it you know in, in historic terms I think Pep's teams are more graceful, seem to be more subtle. Um, to me, Guardiola is rhythm and Mourinho is disruption. Mm-hmm. And Manchester United, yeah, they have, of course, passing and rhythm is important, but I always thought Manchester United teams did what they had to do to win. So Alex Ferguson teams, of course, the great football, the risk, the wonderful play, but there were times where if we were playing Arsenal or if we were playing we would really become disruptive to the to the game mm-hmm. and whereas I think Pep would never think that way mm-hmm. so I think that ultimately maybe Mourinho at this moment and I'm not just saying because he's here is probably a better fit I think that we'll see we'll see how it plays out in the next 12 to 18 months I'm intrigued to know how Pep will do in the Premier League I'm intrigued to know I know we've, got, we've had an early indication but I don't think the real true test has come yet for, for Marino United or Pepper he can't do something so, so it's too early but I'll be really interested to know this is has to be his greatest challenge no doubt has to be his greatest mm-hmm. challenge because it's not winter yet and this place changes and it's not even that well it's that but it's also the fact that uh, Barcelona and Bayern Munich he had such good players yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they were a winning side yeah and he doesn't have that at City no, yet the change the change to get where he wants is greater here than it has been at his other two clubs mm-hmm. um, his other two clubs have been sensational but to change the mentality of that dressing room which is to be fair I think underperformed in the last couple of seasons no doubt he should have won the league they've been the best squad to change that mentality I think you definitely can see that there's a change of mentality already I think there's an immediate shift but the Christmas programme five games in 14 days Mm -hmm. and the fact that he will find I think it will be the most difficult job and I think he will find it the most difficult and I think it will become I mean 
when was the last time he lost the league? <laughs> was it Marino? Was it the Mourinho year yeah. at Real Madrid? Yeah. What was that? Six years ago. That was 2012. Yeah. So look, there's no doubt they could win the league this year. There is no doubt that they spent the most money, haven't they? I think. Yeah. So he signed, but to shift the, the, that dressing room from from that from the mentality to his will be the biggest job of his you really see it the way David Silva plays the fact that everybody's lost weight yeah. which is a sign of uh, of better training uh, better attitude generally yeah I, 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 yes I mean but what a, what an appalling reflection upon those players to say that to think that the last two years they're overweight they're not committed they've stepped off the gas it's an appalling reflection on, a, on players uh, and leadership know, as well well, yeah, leadership. It's a poorly reflection. In fact, the idea that players are coming out and I say, "Oh, we're fitter, we're stronger," you idiots! Yeah. It was you that should have got yourself. We don't blame Pellegrini. You go and go and get get fit. Don't eat. Don't drink whatever you're drinking to get fat. Out. You know, the, the very least, the very least a fan can expect of a football player is 100% commitment and to make sure that you prepare as well as you possibly can. But if the culture doesn't invite you to that if you're surrounded by people that are not forcing themselves to a limit but what about self what about self-regulation what about your own pride as a football player I get what you're saying is what you're saying is basically people are sheep and they're following basically but the idea that the idea that all of a sudden as a football player you're not prepared or you're not giving your all which actually I think is definitely can be, you know, you can argue at City that's happened in the last couple of years because they have had the talent. United haven't had the talent in the last two or three years to win the league, there's no doubt. City have had the talent to win the league in the last couple of years and they've fallen short in those areas of mentality. And I think, yeah, commitment, I think definitely mental and physical commitment, just the capacity to go again, the capacity to actually forget defeat and win and forget winning and win again. Mm-hmm. They have not been able to actually deal with it and it's the, that's the suppose that the Sir Alex Ferguson teams the idea that they could win again the Barcelona teams they can win again the great teams can win again it wasn't just um, so Sir Alex creates that culture you're all fit from it but then you get a Cristiano Ronaldo who pushes, pushes everybody to, to the limit and I remember talking to Mick Clegg and others and saying you, 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 it's so hard you, you say that you say that and I, I, I can agree with it to an extent I can agree with it Cristiano Ronaldo was butchered and battered for two or three years at Manchester United by people, by players, by coaching staff, by Mick Clegg, to get him to think that way. Mm-hmm. He didn't come like that. He didn't arrive at Manchester United as somebody who was setting the tone for everybody else. He became that out of what was in that dressing room. Mm-hmm. I, Cristiano wouldn't say that he came. He, he says he made, he made him a man. I know he said that. It set the standard. He set the standard when he left, and he became someone who came in in the morning and did half an hour before training, an hour after training. But there have been twenty players per season for fifteen years doing that mm-hmm. every day. He, he I gen, and I'm not. The club and Sir Alex and the players all set the tone for each other. I, I, I don't think it was a case of he came in and all of a sudden everyone else up the game that, that's not how it was if you look at his performances in the first two or three years his maturity his decision making his physicality his um, his petulance 
they were all smoothed out over a period of three or four years at the club um, and obviously it's become the most inc- I mean for two years I cannot believe it could ever at Manchester United 2007-8 2008-9 I cannot believe that Manchester United fans could have ever seen anything like that mm. from a level of before. it was just out of this world it was another planet nil nil as United attack that end of the ground the ball played in and it's in Manchester United inevitably with Cristiano Ronaldo have scored first ball fired in from the right flank Ronaldo climbed high ghosted into the far post it's Chelsea nil Manchester United won I think you're on three now for obvious reasons I mean he's, he's gone he's become older he's won more I don't know if that's affecting him or not but uh, it is a different player it is a different player I, yeah, this this idea that he's a different player, I, I, I've been fielding questions on Wayne Rooney. Of course, he's a different player. Paul Pogba is whatever he's twenty three now, he's twenty four. Do you know he's thirty two? Do you know he's going to be a different player? Don't be surprised, everyone, when it gets there. But we all seem surprised. We all, Paul Scholes is a marauding midfield player going into the box, scoring goals. He becomes a holding midfield player. Ryan Giggs is a left winger who becomes a central midfield player. It's not so much that they're surprised, it's that they want to keep that picture of that 23 yeah, year old uh, dribbling everybody and uh, scoring fantastically from outside the box. I, I hear experts saying he's not the same as he was. Well, what did you expect? But the fact that he's changed, the only debate there is has he changed, has he evolved as a player or has he reduced? Reduce the um, area of influence. Where I think that Messi has has changed and evolved, Cristiano has reduced his area of influence. He won the European Cup last season, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, a pe- with, a ge- with a game where he didn't appear and scored the penalty, the penalty shootout. I know, but I think I, I, I think we're very. I mean, Rooney Rooney gets put under exactly. I mean, you know, different players can, can't compare them. But I remember Steven Gerrard towards the end, and I remember. The, the, all these players go through this what I would call the change the change the change happens it can be 28 it can be 32 usually it's between 30 and 33 it, the change comes where something you know, I always remember when Roy Keane come to Manchester United box to box very much towards the sort of middle of his career and end of his career he was very much controlling the game Paul Scholes similarly Steven Gerrard became a quarterback holding midfield Steven Gerrard was a marauding box to box midfield player I've I, I've seen so many examples of this change that I refuse now to actually, if you like, pay attention to it in a negative way other than to say, is he still contributing to his team to be successful? And the answer is yes, and the manager feels it's yes, then we have to accept that he's not going to be. So Alex used to say, young people, they'll run through barbed wire fence. They'll confront a barbed wire fence and they'll run through it and they'll scratch themselves. And the more experienced person will go to the barbed wire fence and there'll be a, a stile sort of 100 metres down the road. And they'll say, oh, I'll walk down there and I'll walk around. <laughs> and you need both. So actually now, Cristiano's influence on the younger ones who want to run through the barbed wire fence mm-hmm. can still be great. And the same for Wayne Rooney, but they're different. They're not the people who run through the barbed wire fence anymore and get scratched. They're the people who walk around the stile. And that's the same with Gerard. It's the same with Giggs. It's the same with Skull. It's the same with Ferdinand. It's the same with Terry. It's the same with all these players who've played for 15 years. You know, they're all changed, they're all... Pirlo was number 10. Mm-hmm. You would have been a centre-back with Pep Guardiola. Oh, no, look that. Now, now you're getting me Now you get me thinking about my football career again, imagine. <laughs> I'd be Mascarano.
intensity, schedule, routine, activity, busy, targets. It sounds like Gary Neville, like many other athletes after the football careers are over, is still in the same running machine that took a not very skillful player right to the top. Perhaps because he needs the appreciation, perhaps because that's how he's built, or maybe even because that's what makes him happy. In any case, I wouldn't bet against his new ventures being successful because, you have heard it here, he's made of the material that brings dreams to life. Thank you for listening to Gary Neville, My Manchester, with me, Guillem Balaguer. Hasta luego, and until the next time. For each Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.